0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch-ch-chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that It's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network,
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Mary Louise Pratt to find out more about, about her new book, Planetary Longings, which has just come out with Duke University Press. Mary Louise Pratt is Professor Emerita at NYU, where she taught in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis, her research includes work on Latin American literature and Latin American studies, comparative literature, linguistics, literary theory, postcolonial studies, feminist and gender studies, anthropology and cultural studies. Her publications include Imperial Eyes, Travel Writing and Transculturation, and Women, Culture and Politics in Latin America, co authored with the West Coast SOFA Collective. Her most recent work as a critic and scholar includes reflections on neoliberalism and culture, language and globalization, and contemporary indigenous politics and thought. Welcome to the show, Mary-Louise, and thanks so much for taking the time to tell us more about your work. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Great. So just to introduce the book, which I recently read and very much enjoyed, Uh, Planetary Longings is, in essence, a series of reflections on the heightening urgency of the ecological and socio-political crises the world currently faces, filtered through the history and cultural specificities of the Americas. I have to confess that uh, Latin American cultural studies is not necessarily an area I'm well versed in, as may be the case for some of our listeners, and this is part of the reason why I was keen to engage with your book and open it up to a wider audience. Um, I was really interested to see the ways in which the book weaves explorations of the particular and sometimes sort of the personal or the anecdotal together with the more universal to explore themes including modernity, colonialism, post-colonialism, neoliberalism and indigeneity. Um, Naturally these topics are quite far-reaching and I think the book will be of interest to many scholars in the humanities and beyond who would find your essays to contain viable insights about our current sort of incredibly precarious conjunctural moments. So I think it'd be great to use our time today to tease out some of your overarching arguments while paying attention to some of the fascinating literary texts and historical case studies you examine throughout, um, some of which I'll definitely be adding to my reading list. So with the kind of expansiveness of your book in mind, my first question is, how did you come to write it? And what were your primary aims in doing so?
1: Thank you um, well thank you for that characterization of the book yeah I think one of the that you captured very well the fact that this is not a book about Latin America it's a book about the world kind of thought from Latin America or imagined from Latin America or from the Americas more generally and um, the book uh, it, it kind of it, it's the other thing I wanted to say about it I think is that it's a book of essays. Which is a form of academic work that I appreciate a great deal. Um, I love the essay form and um, the book of essays that is constructed around a set of sort of common preoccupations. Um, I really, my role models are books like essayists like Clifford Goertz in The Interpretation of Cultures or Homi Bhabha in Location of Culture or Spivak in In Other Worlds, Gibson Graham um, in The End of Capitalism as We Knew It. This, So I like the essay form a great deal especially because it is so teachable and when I write the essays I really think a lot about the cl- classrooms and being able to, to teach these. The essay is a form that tries to not to put an end to a conversation by resolving things, but it tends to tries to open up a conversation and move it forward and enrich it. So that's kind of the um, form that this book takes. The book hinges on, um, it It really began around the year 2000, and it hinges on what I call, I've come to call the millennial pivot. And it tries to capture a sense that, of the epical shift that happened between the 1990s and the first, the last decade of the the previous millennium, and the first decade of this one, and so I try to kind of tr- trace in the first ten or so chapters that that epical shift, and what the 90s looked like now from here, what we were thinking then, and what what changed, and. And you know the pivot, the millennial pivot has a lot of one of the characteristics of it is the shift from um, uh, the shift from the global to the planetary, hence the title "Planetary Longings." And that shift from from the from globality to planetarity was one of the is one of the sort of hallmarks of the the um, epical mark the marker that I see I'm seeing there, and that also goes with the shift from what I call the post to the geo. And the 90s were characterized by the, the prefix post was kind of the hallmark of 90s thinking. We were post everything. We were post humanist and we were post modern and post colonial and, and post historical. And, and I was always fascinated by that post prefix because it seemed to unable to, it didn't, It was a, it was about pastness, not futurity. It didn't generate a story of where we could be going. And so it it was kind of a registering continuously sort of endings of things and when with the shift of the millennium and the shift towards the geo um, and the planetary we are in um we're out of that post phase and we're in a full fledged crisis of futurity that we are now engaging with in 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 ways that we were not in the nineties so I'm very fascinated by that shift from Post to geo, so now we're having geo humanities, and I'm writing about geolinguistics, and there's geohistorical, and so so planetarities kind of built into the intellectual project in a really um, interesting new ways, and I think the post uh, really had to do in the '90s with the. Uh, final kind of exhaustion and dissolution of the grand narrative of modernity and that's where there's a long one of the long the first chapter of the book is about called modernity's false promises that kind of traces um that um that collapse and that and and kind of gives an anatomy of it and um i think that was sort of underwriting that narrative just stopped being able to generate incredible visions of the future in the era of free, sort of ruthless free trade um, capitalism. So that to me is where the 90s got its kind of dead end post feel. And a crisis of, you know, as we approached the millennium, it felt like a crisis of futurity and a crisis of knowledge, knowing that we needed, there's going to be new knowledge needed and we didn't have it yet. We didn't yet quite know how to get it. So that's sort of the axis, the
2: pivot of of the book. Yeah, so i will focus on a little bit on this millennium question now. So, you know, in the in the introduction of your book, you kind of open with this description of a uh, Peruvian anti-capitalist sect that you encountered while vis- visiting a restaurant. Is that is that right? Yeah, in Cusco. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's great. I was, re- I was really interested to see how you sort of treat this um, essentially millionarian group Um which is concerned with like this fascinating mix of extraterrestrials and anti-consumerism as kind of reflective of wider anxieties about futurity, as you say, and knowledge production around this turn of the millennium. Um, So this in your discussion sort of surrounding indigenous world-making Um, kind of struck me perhaps as maybe a counterpoint to a more sort of Western hegemonic narrative about the millennium that was hanging on to maybe a kind of end of history idealism. So I was was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the significance of the millennium for Latin American and indigenous thought specifically, particularly sort of regarding the idea of planetarity that serves as a kind of through line for for the book's essays.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I I think... um... In terms of yes, that wonderful Peruvian sect called Alpha y Omega, um, a lot the book my this book often often draws on popular culture, to and to and it I have a very strong conviction that popular culture often is always registering what is happening in, in ways that are often can be allegorical and mythical and speculative, but it, it is definitely popular culture is a source for me of insight into how people are experiencing the larger questions in the world. And sects like Alpha and Omega, you, you can just see there that the exhaustion of the narrative of modernity and what, uh, um, uh, the expectation of modernity that that whole idea of progress that was being lived very fully in Latin America after world war ii is isn't functioning anymore, isn't explaining the world anymore. And you got all kinds of um, uh, in popular culture, mythologies, people will probably remember the mythology of the um, organ, organ theft to the stolen travelers having their kidneys stolen and, um uh, there was a whole lot of popular mythology that was registering the kind of depredations of neoliberalism in and and of free market capitalism what it was doing to um the general populations and this was true in Africa and other parts of the world as well as in as in um Latin America so i was very interested in how the popular imagination was formulating this predicament that, that was happening, the kind of mass immiseration in the 90s across Latin America, falling wages and and kind of a inability to construct aspirations for the future. So um, that was sort of one of the millennial um, mindsets that I was trying to study. And in particular, in terms of indigeneity, yes, the 90s In Latin America, but also worldwide, in the 90s, indigenous people became what um, one Bolivian theorist called strategic populations in the struggle against, in the confrontation with multinational capital, because um, one of the features of the 90s in the world economy was the tremendous invasiveness of especially lumber and mining companies into zones where they had not operated before, into zones that were indigenous peoples. Had a relative degrees of autonomy, and and so they became really strategic populations in um, demand in resisting and fighting against this stuff and making demands on states to respond to their interests. And so in Latin America, in particular, in the nineties, there was a the first kind of hemispheric wide uh, mobilization of indigenous people, and there was and this was partly in response to the Colombian the quincentennial of Columbus in 1992. But you got, for the first time, a real hemispheric mobilization of indigenous people. They put in, there was a big meeting in Ecuador and Quito. There was a big declaration put out. And at the same time, you got the UN responding, also creating the declaration of the rights of indigenous people um, after years of debate. And uh, and so this there, there was kind of this political social movement happening. And then... I think the pivot is that in the early twentieth century, um, from 1999 on, indigenous thought became has become a key player. Kind of, I speak about it as transforming the intellectual commons, and so some indigenous thinkers are now playing a very strategic role in. The, in the creation of the thought around an ecological crisis and then they are a strategic source of um, alternative language and alternative worldviews but that and, and what's interesting about indigenous thought that body of indigenous thought that is burgeoning right now in many parts of the world is that it is very um, it is completely extroverted indigenous thinkers are trying to are creating knowledge to be intended to be d- disseminated across the world, to cre- intended to produce the next grand narrative that we can all, uh, because we're all in this together. And I, if, if anyone's, sur- either no one's gonna survive or people are gonna survive. So, so that's where ind- ind- the through line of indigeneity and the way the millennial pivot works um, along, that is very, has one of the threads in the book that comes up a lot.
2: Yeah, that idea of uh, extroversion, I think, is one of the sort of key nodal points I what was really, um, yeah, interesting. So um, just kind of circling back this idea of modernity. In your first essay, you discuss the use of modernity as this category of sort of Eurocentric intellectualism, exploring its sort of contradictory, tele- teleological and obfuscatory elements that kind of aim to absorb um, kind of those on the those on the periphery. So could you explain the problems with this standard account and touch on some of the examples of periphery literary, peripheral literary um, and cultural experiments you explore in the book that attempt to sort of subvert its neocolonial relationality? Okay,
1: well, thank you. You put that much better than I did, actually. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, what I what I um, I did a kind of anatomy of of um, in in the late nineties. I started doing a kind of an anatomy of modernity, and it. Trying to as it exhausted itself, trying to figure out how what from the postmodern position, how could we, what did, what could modernity look like to us? What could we understand that we didn't understand before? And you know, when I what I call the standard account account of modernity is that that modernity's myth about itself that it kind of sui generis surges up in Europe and then spreads out to the rest of the world in a kind of diffusion, a civilizational diffusion that is thought about as is imagined as quite natural because the obvious superiority of this civilizational model just propels it of its own accord. And that kind of, um, that mo- that myth of modernity, it, it kind of held a lot of people in place in the world that were in, in outside Europe That narrative gave many people a lot of a great deal of meaning to their lives and many intellectuals believed in the narrative that our goal is modern modern to modernize where we are to bring and propagate modernity here in the ex colonial world and um, believing in the idea that at some point, we will all be modern. And uh, equally modern, and that will be the high civilizational state to be achieved. So that was a very compelling story for not just elites, for everybody, for a long time. Um, J- James Ferguson, the um, is an anthropologist who works on Africa an Africanist, and he did a study in Zambia, wrote a book called Expectations of Modernity and just described the way those expectations informed life at every possible sphere and every level. And then, when those expectations evaporated, when um, s- suddenly um, the again this new kind, new form of predatory capitalism transformed everything, and um, it so um, so that was the so I wanted to think about well, what would a relational account of modernity look like? Meaning. An account that began with the fact that European modernity was a result of its drawing in from other parts of the world, what it drew in from its colonial uh, colonies, from the colonial world, reprocessed it and then surged, then absorbed it. And that relational account that mo- modernity has coloniality at its heart, um, that it requires that um that system of absorbing from elsewhere, that that was going to give a different account of modernity. And so that was sort of the the general uh, principle propelling the study. And then I kind of just do a sort of fairly it's kind of interest, an interesting anatomy to me of the way the narrative of modernity functions by having all kinds of different narratives of origin, and you can just pick whichever one you want, depending on the argument you want to make, that sort of um, looseness of the modernity narrative is to me very was very strategic in holding it in, in place, and then yes, yeah, so I look at well, what happens? What actually happens to modernity when it lands in Latin America? These principles and aspirations, and um, enters into contradiction with the world that is there. It enters into a completely different world where, in the ex-colonies, the um, you know modernity always has to have an other in order to know itself. There has to be a non-modern other of some kind. And in the ex-colonies, those non-modern others are cohabiting the space with the moderns. And it's a whole different configuration of of that is completely unlike Europe. And so what results is going to be completely different. So in the literary part of that uh, chapter, I talk about how in modern literature, what's considered modernism in Latin America, which is in the teens, 20s, 30s, the literature that's produced there is very experimental, very modern, but it also combines both urban and rural projects, and the rural is the site of literary, of all kinds of incredible literary um, experimentation in Latin America. That's very different from the way way European literature is configured in that period. So that was one example of the where liter- the what literature showed how it showed the difference
2: yeah and there's, there's some examples of sort of literary experiments that I'll be I'll be looking out uh, looking up for sure and um, adding to my reading list because it all looks really fascinating um so in the next couple of chapters of the book you examine migration uh, mobility stasis and the idea of you know unfettered flow that represents sort of another of the fictions of modernity Um, And as you know, there's a significant difference between, say, the movement of uh, tourists through a given region and the movement of labourers. So could you provide listeners with an overview of how you address the politics of movement um, in the book, particularly in relation to tourism, freedom, unfreedom, and indigeneity sort of within the neoliberal order? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, well, it was... um... In the 90s, mass tourism was um, the largest industry in the world after the drug trade. And uh, so that form of mobility had just expanded itself to, at an enormous rate. At the same time in the 90s, we started seeing uh, the forms of now desperate, kind of desperate, economically driven out-migration from what was used to be the called the third world into the first, and uh, I was watching the way um, the in the nineties we that our attention started to really be called to to that those forms of migration. I have this principle I call thinking through mobility that I talk about in the book, where what I find is that if 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 people are moving, if people are turning up somewhere where they weren't before it's always, uh, it's always to me is a clue to look, ask what is happening, that something has shifted, um, that has set people in motion. And I always analyze mobility as a relation between people who go and people who stay. And it always is that. And, and, um, so you had this kind of dialectic between basically kind of North to South tourism and South to North migration, um, and uh, the kind of colonial world imploding back on Europe and and North America. And um, I just, uh, that was kind of very enabling for me to think about um, how, uh, how people were, how belonging and unbelonging were getting redefined. And it certainly provided a counter narrative to the, as you mentioned, the metaphor of flow, which was which was neoliberal globalization's kind of favorite metaphor for itself was so going to be the free flow. And there was no way you can describe as flow the people drowning in the Mediterranean in those boats. It's still happening, right? Flow is not the right um, word. Uh, and uh, so there's a critique in, in the in the second chapter of that metaphor of flow and all the things that it distorts, Um and conceals. And then I, I um, th- there are two chapters on this question of mobility. And I end with, um, uh, cause mobility had, I end with a, a section on the Zapatista movement in um, Mexico, which of course burst out in 1994 and the way that they, um, were conducted some incredibly, Radical experiments with going and staying and hosting and traveling and uh, that were that were really defining um, new forms of citizenship and belonging and, and articulating their claims as indigenous people. So they did not see their their indigeneity as as irrevocably tied to a certain place. They felt like it was a, they had a claim on the whole nation. So they sent delegations all over Mexico and where places where people had never seen indigenous people before and certainly places where the indigenous Zapatistas had never been before. And there was just kind of a whole re, very interesting reclaiming of belonging and citizenship through the movement of the body in the national and international space so those there are two studies that kind of um, take up try to look at this whole this whole millennial transition through that question of mobility.
2: Yeah. So let's dig into something a little bit more specific now to get a better better idea of how you're. Your frameworks operate throughout the book. Um, in your fourth chapter, you examine a number of novelistic experiments that serve as allegories for the crisis of futurity and the kind of inscrutability of that crisis, I suppose. Um, I was really interested in their treatment of sexual and gender politics, particularly given the proliferation of gay and les- uh, lesbian and feminist activism in the 90s. Um Could you give our audience a brief introduction to some of the texts you explore um, and how you link them to the socio-political sort of valences of the neoliberal millennial moment?
1: Sure. So uh, that chapter resulted from um, an experiment that I conducted in, uh, I was living in Mexico in 1998-99 and thinking, watching what was going on around me, it was post-NAFTA, and I was in western Mexico and Guadalajara, and I was watching the, the transformation of, of society. I was watching the traditional agriculture, small-scale farming breaking down, and people having to migrate north. I was watching all kinds of things changing. And um, I decided to read, I, I'm just going to read all the novels I can get my hands on that have appeared in the 1990s. And so and I will just see what what is what do I see in these books what are they telling me about where these where the writers are are how the writers are articulating this period of change at the end of the millennium. And I ended up I just read until I started to see patterns. And it was kind of like this feeling that You know, the knowledge maker is not I'm not sitting there with a a lamp a helmet with a lamp shining light on things. I'm sitting there in the dark waiting to be able to see something, you know. And so it was really it was fun to do it. Very interesting. And I so I'm the patterns I discovered are discussed in in a set of five novels in that uh, chapter that that were all published in 1994, 95. And they are um, one called um, Beauty Parlor by a Mexican-Peruvian writer named Mario Bellatin. There's another called um, Los Vigilantes by Diamela El Tite, and I forget the title in English. You may be able to find it. Um, another is Tula Oscuridad by Mayra Montero, who's a Dominican writer. And um, another is called Plata Quemada, Money to Burn by Ricardo Piglia. And in these novels, and um, oh, and Fernando Vallejo, La Virgen de los Sicarios, The Virgin of the Assassins by Fernando Vallejo. And I found several of the patterns that emerged in these novels that were really quite distinctive and unlike that were new. Where, first of all, the thing you mentioned, there is a breakdown of relations between male and female people. And and what the form it takes is that women, female characters, female bodies, spin out of the story, and you're left with a story that's just about males, male bodies. So there's something, some map way, and sometimes that story is homo homoerotic. Sometimes it's fraternal. Um, it has different configurations. The AIDS crisis is there. Beatty's novel Beauty Parlor is about a uh, a beauty salon, a guy who converts his beauty salon into a um, place for AIDS patients to go to die, and so and it so and then it it's, it's a, a discussion of his yes that whole process and the social transformation that it involves, and uh, so the break the the polarization of male and female, and the spinning off of women out of the narrative where they're out wandering. The world, Um, and and it tends to be the male characters that are stuck in one claustrophobic place. So there's quite a reversal there. So there's that, is one of the things that happens. Another is kind of apocalyptic um, uses of fire and flood, and um, there's there's water and fire appear in kind of very apocalyptic forms. And. The other thing that really fascinated me was in in these novels is there appear structures of the structures appear that the narrators, the characters in the novel, know are important and interesting and are telling them something, but they are unable to decipher them. And that was just such an interesting, weird trope that was totally unique to this corpus of writing from the mid-90s. So for example, in El Tid's novel, a single mother, it's about a single mother kind of cooped up in a house with her son who is autistic or something like that. And he has a set of containers that he continually builds structures with, and she can see that these containers, these structures are very meaningful and important and significant, but she has no idea what they mean. And she writes the boy's father over and over again about what he's doing with these containers. And um, in uh, another novel by César Aira, an Argentinian novelist called um, the, um, oh, the, um, not the ghetto, um, La Villa in Spanish, Um, there's a a detective is a a whole neighborhood that a a barrio that a detective is supposed to figure out how the drug trade is operating there. And it's uh, opaque to him. So this figure, this, this, this trope of figures of knowing who are Confronting structures that they cannot decipher. To me, that was just such a millennial moment of like we're heading. We, there's a future that requires knowledge I don't have, and I, that and it's going to be some structures that I don't understand. And the knowledge is already there in the child or in the inhabitants of the of the ghetto. Um, Montero's novel is about to a uh, herpetologist who goes in search of the last the last living uh, member of a species of frog and and um, ends up being drowned by by a storm that's attributed to a goddess so these these tropes that kept recurring in this corpus of novels just totally fascinated me as diagnostics of the predicament that the civilizational predicament that people saw themselves in in the 90s they are all very particular to the mid 90s when they appeared
2: hmm. um so i'd like to return now to your books focus on indigeneity and its generative potential um, in a futurological context so that's the uh the extra version that you you mentioned i suppose um Could you expand on some of the the radical potential that you identify in indigenous activism, particularly in relation to issues surrounding environmental degradation?
1: Right. Well, I would go back to, um, yeah, that idea of being, having become strategic populations rather than marginal populations and it's, it's just very interesting how that happens because it's quite geographical. You know, an indigenous group becomes strategic when the lumber company arrives and wants permission to, to cut down its forests or the oil company arrives, as we've had here in the U.S., and wants to put a pipeline across someone's somebody's land. And, um, and so uh, it, it... And then... The and and what's what I think is one of the things that's shifted that's changed dramatically, and part is through the United Nations. Uh, indigenous populations have been brought together, and and our work have have our have created, if you like, um, kind of people, citizens, members of the group mem- group members who are able to engage in these forums and and, and international um, uh, gatherings that work out. Plans, you know, collectively and and, uh, pursue shared goals, and so um, an indigenous. It's it's one of the things that I really realized when I thought about indigeneity is that it is a relational identity. That is that, as I like to put it, no one is indigenous until someone else shows up. You know, you can be a Kiche Maya person but you're not an indigenous person until the Spaniards appear and you become that in relation to them. You become other in relation to them. And all the terms around indigeneity or First Nations or um, uh, Aboriginal are all about being there first, right? Who was there before? And being there first is the source of this certain kind of power an entitlement in the world um, that can be is available to be to be used in a certain way. So it's very it's a kind of interesting uh, thing that indigeneity in that way is the product of coloniality, <clears throat> and is the site of its of decolonization and of of uh, the the critique of coloniality, and indigenous people. Um, you know the 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 um, power of the of an indigenous of indigeneity is the continuity between who I am today and who I was before you guys showed up, and that that connection back to an origin uh, Aboriginal identity and form and history, and in 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 the place is kind of the critical thread and the continuity of that thread is what keeps an indigenous group indigenous alive, you know, and if you lose that thread, the group just is absorbed into the rest of the society around them. So it's, it's that whole way indigeneity is organized and the source of the power and the form of the power is really important. And of course, those are the, that connection back is a connection to pre-capitalist life ways Subsistence life was, although not entirely. I mean, there were the biggest cities in the world were in the Americas in 1492, but that um, continuity back to pre to a non capitalist pre capitalist history is one of the threads that really. Um, and then, of course, the territoriality of indigenous people, so that they have been able to, to the extent they've been able to. Uh, have an autonomous territorial place that the presence where they can evolve life ways as they as they desire that makes the source it means that all and it does mean that all kinds of non-capitalist knowledge exists inhabits those spaces and is now being made available to others by indigenous intellectuals themselves um, as a way to try and indigenize the rest of the world so that's sort of the dynamic that i'm trying to that i'm looking at in in um in in the in the book
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, so in some ways this kind of this increased scholarly interest in indigenous activism and sort of increased availability of indigenous scholarship sort of is parallel with this um, interest in an epochal category of the Anthropocene which has come into increasingly common usage in recent years alongside variations like the Capitalocene or... um, Donna Haraway's Cthulhu scene, which take slightly different approaches to ecological shifts. Um, you describe this era in terms of um, a so-called chronotope. Um, so could you describe what this means and its implications for planetary thinking?
1: Yes. Well, Anthropocene was a really was an example of, yes, the epical shift that I'm talking about. That term really came into what brought, came into the vocabulary with planetarity. Um, right around just after around two thousand, maybe a year or two before. And what I was interested in, I, you know, partly when you have training in textual analysis, you do the a narrative analysis, you do these kinds of, uh, an anatomical exercises. And I'm like, what is the anatomy of this concept of Anthropocene, and what what uh, what is it enabling? And I I real I I came to think about it as a concept in the way that Elizabeth Gross, the Australian philosopher, defines concepts. And then as a chronotype in chronotope in the way that is defined by um, the literary theorist Mihai Bakhtin. And for Bakhtin, the chronotope, he, he was analyzing the novel, novels, and he said the chronotope is that kind of conjunction of time and place in which is there a history and and geography of time and space in which a story unfolds. And the chronotope is kind of the the time-space configuration in which a narrative is set and, and through which a narrative can tell a society something about itself. And what fascinated me about the Anthropocene is that it's completely different from the Holocene. The previous, the Holocene is a concept that we structured, looking back from the present to a remote past, sifting through the detritus and layers of archaeological um, debris to construct a story of the distant past. The Anthropocene is all about future. The future. It's it's all about the future, and what it 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 what it imagines is a future point in which someone looks back on this period and sifts through the detritus of this period and realizes what happened. And that someone, if the uh, anthropocentric story is correct, that someone will not be human. It will be some other subject of knowing because we will be gone. And the story that that person will learn from sifting through the debris is the story of what happened to us, right? And that story, so it's a totally different the concept has a completely different function and configuration than the previous geological eras. And so I was just really interested in that futurological time-space configuration. And um, it's kind of like what happens in the classic film, Planet of the Apes. Do you remember where the a, a crew returns to Earth after hundreds of years in space, and they find it in, in, inhabited by apes who are slowly discovering how humans destroyed themselves? It's sort of that kind of configuration built into Anthropocene. And it's, yet it still, it uses the Anthropo. It still has humans at the center of the story, which is a, to me a very, a limitation of, of the term. Um, so that was what I was trying to just do a little anatomy of that concept and what it, what's the work it's doing for us, which is enabling a certain kind of apocalyptic imagining that is totally characteristic of the new millennium. That's the geo it's um, and enabling it um, in a way that doesn't quite displace humanism. <laughs>
2: mm, yeah. Um, so moving from the Anthropocene to something more, a little bit more specific, just to zone in on uh, the chapter exploring authoritarianism and Chile, as I think this will be of you know great interest to readers given the country's history as this kind of experimental ground for neoliberal, neoliberalism's architects. And um, of course, due to sort of recent developments surrounding presidency, some of which I imagine, yeah, would have happened too recently, even to be covered in this book. Um, so could you explain how your analysis of Chile's authoritarian history and its recent constitutional plebiscite relate to your wider arguments about neoliberalism and crises of futurity?
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah, that um, uh, that essay was triggered in part by in the summer of 2020, a tweet that came p- across my desk when someone said they were looking at the way the police were um, uh, attacking demonstrators in Seattle, and it said we're looking at the pinochetization of the United States, <laughs> and I thought, oh, but um, so I think. It, the longer I've lived in the United States, um, the more I've come to think that U.S. politics follow Latin American politics a lot, and more so than Europe. And very often, if you're trying to understand what's going on politically in the U.S., you can learn as much or more by looking south as you can by looking east towards Europe. And um, so um, when I was thinking, watching the rise of the right wing in the United States in response partly to the Obama presidency. And it took me back to um, authoritarianism in Chile in response to the Allende socialist government being elected in 72. And um, so it made sense to kind of think about putting those together and asking, you know, what the the chapter in the book is called Lessons from Chile. What can we learn um, uh, from that experience? And uh, one of the things that to be learned um, is when you enter into it, it's not easy, as easy to undo authoritarianism as it is to fall into it. And um, I was really studying there. Uh, the, the Pinochet was in power from 1973 till 1989, and the constitution that he put into effect is still in effect right now in Chile in the, in the summer of 2020, while we were demonstrating about George Floyd's murder, the Chileans were demonstrating to demand a new constitution. It took that long to get the state to respond to that demand. So 1973 to to 20, well, it was 1980, that constitution was passed to 40 years of struggle. And so, um, I was so the lesson from Chile that I wanted to bring forward was how unbelievably long and hard the road back to democracy was for Chile and in that um in that essay I look at um forms of forms of resistance that um Artists and intellectuals and writers undertook in Chile. I focus a lot on a particular novelist who appears multiple times in the book, whose name is Diamela El who I think is just the most brilliant, brilliant writer um, of our time. she's uh, Her novels are incredible. And she, throughout the dictatorship from the beginning to the end, was writing. Um, she also did experimental video work. She was in the and she was her work kind of does the anatomy of authoritarianism, and one of the things that it 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 emphasizes or grasps is that everyone's psyche is transformed by this, um, including those who resist it, who are opposed to it, and to get out of to make your way back to out of that that psychic configuration that the dictatorship a dictatorship will put you in. Um, is, is difficult, it's painful, and it's hard, and it takes a long time. So a lot of that, um, it, that in, is, the, a lot of the essays about her kind of anatomy of the dictatorship and its aftermath in her novels, and about the um, campaign to restore democracy in Chile and to um, create a subject, a new political subject who would be able to say no to a dictatorship so that was kind of the, the lessons um, for Chilean, of course uh, from Chile and of course there were a lot of interesting comparisons to be made between the figure of Trump and the figure of Pinochet and also interesting contrast the Pinochet was uh, a figure that came into power an authoritarian figure before before social media before the internet um, in fact most most Chilean homes didn't even have television when he came into power whereas Trump is a you know, a product of the entertainment industry. So there, that contrast is very real. Um, so that was kind of the, yeah, the point of Lessons from Chile.
2: <laughs> mm. So let's kind of shift focus slightly to the second half of the book now, which I think considers sort of in closer detail the role of the academy and different dinner pl- disciplinary practices in, in knowledge production surrounding indigeneity and coloniality um could you expand on how you address the somewhat fraught role of ethnographic research in the academy it's it's contradictions and the potential for more experimental kinds of ethnographic ethnographic writing to to generate valuable forms of knowledge in sort of our current planetary moment
1: yeah thanks yes um well ethnography certainly went into crisis at the end of the the end of the uh, 20th century, and that that there's an the essay on eth, on the ethnographer uh, ethnography um, is is it inaugurates the second part of the book, which as you say focuses on um, uh, indigeneity, coloniality, and decolonization, and that so that essay looks at some of um, both how class both classic ethnography's debt to travel writing, which of course Harts takes back. Takes us back to the book I wrote in the '90s on travel writing. So it looks at how classic ethnography, what what classic ethnography draws from travel writing, even though it claims it has a tr- much superior authority, and then it looks at efforts by ethnographers to decolonize travel writing in the '90s and '80s and '90s, and um, what challenges that produced and what kind of, what kind of tropologies it, it produced. So um, it, it it looks, so that it kind of, that's an examination sort of of how the coloniality as a force um, continued to influence ethnography. And that essay um, is kind of goes together with, it is paired with one that follows it, which is um, about the ethnographer Um, who uh, did fieldwork in Guatemala and produced a very um, aggressive attack on the indigenous um, writer and activist Rigoberta Menchú, where you see someone in the year 1999-2000 recuperating that ethnographic authority of the white male outsider northerner, to 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 dispel from the intellectual commons this figure, this indigenous figure who has taken up a conspicuous role there, and so it's kind of a companion. Those two essays are kind of companion pieces to one another, um, looking at the mutations of ethnographic authority and um, the challenge represented to it by indigenous subjects and and knowledge makers. And um, those two essays kind of are paired with a third one that is um, called uh, The Politics of Reenactment. That is uh, a similar analysis about a Spanish film crew. It's about a film made uh, called Tambien La Lluvia or Even the Rain. I don't know if anybody's seen it. It's a very interesting film, I recommend it. Uh, And it's a film about a Spanish film crew that goes to Bolivia to film Uh, to make a film and the crew just confronts their own coloniality in its, in its millennial 2002 form. And uh, so it's another one where the kind of ethnographic eye is, is problematized. Um, So those three essays are kind of, kind of go together as examinations of this particular eye and how you can de, and the the problematic of decolonization.
2: Mm. So toward the end of the book, you explore what um, you call the futurology of independence and cast a kind of critical eye over the notion of independence as a kind of vital step in a teleological script of decolonization. Um, So could you explain how you reimagine independence in a way that doesn't adhere to this mold and touch on a couple of examples to sort of illustrate this?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah, um, independence is another of those, another moment w- uh, that where you have a crisis of futurity, and um, it so happened that in twenty ten was twenty ten to twenty twenty was the two hundred year anniversary of Latin Americans countries' independences. They were, most of the countries became independent between. 1810 and 1820, and that bicentennial made all of us uh, think back, and and I was intrigued to look back and say, okay, from here I am in the second millenn- in the new millennium. What what do I what do we see now when we look back? And of course, I was thinking about this crisis of futurity stuff, and I realized that reading back to the thinkers who were trying to produce independence, it was fascinating to see that. Nobody had any idea what what post independence would look like, what the society would look like, what they wanted to build. People made uh, so you know you read um, the people the, the Bolivar and and uh, Pedro Miranda going around uh, Europe trying to get support for independence for Latin America for Spanish America's colonies. And they're articulating these incredible aspirations that have no relation to, that are completely fantastic. And I realized that, um, so was able to see partly because of we were li- had lived ourselves in this kind of semantic vacuum at the turn of the millennium where the narrative of modernity is gone and we don't know what the new story is. And likewise, the narrative of colonial oppression was going to be gone, but what was the new story going to be? And, um, and, you had to really uh um it, you had to be you were the, the the architects of independence were set in this in this futurological stance where they're projected into a future but it's a future they don't know what it will look like it's a future whose contours towards lie below the horizon and or beyond the horizon so i just i got very interested in that predicament and then i began tracing out and in fact there of course there was no script for independence we look back and see a script but at the time there was no script looking looking ahead and so what i discovered was that in fact decolonization did not took very took a great di- different forms independence was not kind of the natural move so in La- in spanish america <clears throat> many countries sought political independence from spain partly because Britain and France really wanted that to happen because they wanted to be able to have commercial presence in the Americas. But in the Philippines, the decolonization project took an opposite um, direction. And the people who wanted to decolonize wanted to seek closer relationships to Spain. They wanted to become a province of Spain and be completely integrated into Spanish, the Spanish liberal state. And so the decolonizing move was a closer proximity to the mother country, the colonial power, not the distancing from it. And um, so I was fascinated analyzing that distinction and that the different ways that that, that played out between the Philippines and um, in Spanish America. And then there were colonies like um, what is now the Dominican Republic that that struggled to find out what to do, which thing they wanted to do. And sometimes the Dominican Republic went through a period where it it tried to be independent, and then it tried to join the United States, it tried to join France, and it, it tried to join England, nobody wanted it, and finally Spain took them back, but then they didn't, <coughs> only for a couple of years. And so, Santo Domingo kept trying to recolonize itself as one of the ways to stabilize itself in the world. And, And so these stories were the the range of the stories was very fascinating to me because we have tended to take independence for granted. And that kind of that piece kind of is a companion with uh, the last piece in the last chapter in the book, which is about the independence minded anti-colonial thinkers of the 1960s and 70s most in Africa people like Nkrumah and, and Walter Walt Rodney in Granada and Amilcar Cabral and a whole lot, Samir you know, mean a lot of people, where that moment of independence was another one of, of radical uncertainty about futures and people arguing for visions that, in fact, ended up not corresponding at, in any way to what actually happened. So those two independence moments kind of go together, and there was kind of an invitation at the end to go back and reread the anti-colonial thinkers, um, especially of the post-World War II, and uh, see what they say to us now. <laughs>
2: mm. Yeah, so another another kind of focus of, significant focus of um, your essays is the legacy of this post-colonial turn in the academy, including its kind of valuable con- contributions and there's still sort of very much active imperative to sort of decolonize across various contexts and disciplines. So um, could you briefly touch on the arguments that drove the anti-colonial analysis and how it can inform political questions of a, of a planetary scale today?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. And I, I haven't finished answering that yet. I think um, what... A lot of those thinkers were were thinking from very strongly Marxist frameworks, and thinking in terms of productive forces, and um, who and and the they were thinking about, they were doing diagnosis of colonialism as an interruption of the productive forces of a country or of a place, of an economy and um, the redirection of, of, of uh, those resources, and they were diagnosing the way that um, so what became under development was produced by ideologies of development. It was not the lack of development, it was a byproduct of development projects. And that kind of thinking, it's not that we haven't, we don't know it, but we haven't, it, it got displaced, anti-colonial thought, by post-colonial thought that kind of wanted to look at hybridity and the mix and, and um, Mestizaje and so on. And um, so I, I actually don't, I don't know where that, that chapter's on the short side, because I'm just not sure where it takes us. Although it took me back. Interestingly, it took me back to the 16th century and the Maya resistance to Spanish then which took very, took similar forms. Um, So it, that piece was something to be pursued. So I'm still, I'm still uh, part way through that reconsideration of those anti-colonial thinkers. I just think we probably shouldn't have forgotten them, because after all, for them, like the problem's capitalism, you know, and um, and I think the problem is capitalism yeah. <laughs> you know? and this yeah. endlessly expansive just machine that devours, you know. So
2: yeah. Um so I think I think we've we've managed to cover quite a lot of um material um in your book and it hopefully that will kind of inspire some of our listeners to go and seek it out. Um so just as a kind of a final question, um do you have any new projects on the horizon um and if so could you tell us a little bit about them?
1: Well, um oh my goodness. I uh I did um in the in the first it, so starting in two thousand, I began to do a lot of work on language and globalization, and um, I started working on what the question of what would a a geolinguistic imagination look like, and um, I was interested in not just what is the impact of globalization on languages and on their distribution and endangering and so on. I was interested in that, but I was also interested in the flip side of that question, which is, how does how do specific features of human language, the way it's learned, the way that it's transmitted, um, the way how how do specific features of human languages have how have they shaped global global relationships? How do they shape what's possible and impossible, and what's easy and hard? And um, you know, if you think of the role of interpreters in Afghanistan, for example, in these struggles, without those interpreters, those how the thing has a completely different configuration. So I was just interested in how the particular features of human language and the way the way it's transmitted, the way it it exists, um, the fact that no one can migrate and leave their language behind, it has to go with you, all these kinds of those just how they give shape to this this, um, this thing to the geo, so that's one uh, project that's sitting in in um, waiting for me to uh, pick it up, and um, and of course then I'm thinking a lot of as we all are about ecological catastrophe, and my question there is um, how is uh, is sort of the pessimist's question, which is. What is the challenge of living if you if you if you assume the worst? What is the challenge of living that? In other words, if indeed we're looking at the slow demise of carbon-based life on the planet, there are, there are incredible choices about how to live that. Um, or if we're looking at mass death and extinction, which we are, how that to me it, it, it's I don't reject I don't I don't think it needs requires falling into a, a cloud of despair. It requires thinking about what are the challenges of the 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 psychic challenges, the political challenges, the aesthetic challenges, the ethical and moral challenges of living a process like that. And it's I'm fine I'm fascinated by that in a way that's not morbid, actually. It's really curious and intriguing to me to think about um, people having the power to just the way you can die well or badly, right? We've all, we've seen people die badly and die well. And this, and so I I think this can be done well or badly. And what would it mean to do it better or worse, you know? So that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about the, uh, the environmental catastrophe narrative that seems to be our our grand narrative right now
2: (laughs) Mm, yeah um well thank you for that That those really sort of big big questions important questions um and yeah good luck with all your kind of future projects um sounds really fascinating um so yeah thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today mary louise
1: thank you for reading the book (laughs) so well (laughs)